Did you know that Spotlight On is completely self-funded by the team that produces it? We're looking for ways to keep the podcast self-sufficient without sacrificing the listener experience or the integrity of the show. The best way we could think of was to ask for the support of our listeners. Please consider making a donation to help cover our annual operating expenses. Go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click the word Donate. If you can, please do. And if you cannot, please continue to enjoy the show. We're happy to have you as a listener. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Grammy-winning pianist and composer Chris Davis. Chris joined us in the wake of the September 2023 release of her album, Live at the Village Vanguard, out on her own Pyroclastic Records label. Live at the Village Vanguard is the second release from her band Diatom Ribbons, an adventurous quintet featuring drummer Terry Lynn Carrington, turntablist and electronic musician Val Jeanty, bassist Trevor Dunn, and new addition guitarist Julian Lage. In addition to talking about that band and that album, Chris guides us through her musical path and development while hipping us to her important work at the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. about, and I promise you we'll spend the majority of the time talking about the new live album, but I just wanted to get some context about your background. Growing up, did you have any forays into popular music or were you sort of a, a serious kid in terms of your classical training moving into jazz? Can you talk a little bit about your evolution as a listener um, before I talk to you about being a player? None of my family were musicians, so I grew up listening to light radio and then I heard my cousin, she came over and played a piece and I thought, oh, wow, this is like amazing that you can connect ideas and share feelings and ideas with others like through this instrument. I started taking lessons when I was about seven. It's like a, a pianist, just a church pianist down the road. And she started me on this. In Canada, they have this program called Royal Conservatory. It's like a graduated classical program you know, play music, play the classics. And then you take these exams where you do theory on scales and sight reading and all of that. So I started that program when I was about seven and I did it all the way through high school. So that was my entrance into classical music, but I never actually listened to classical music. It was all through reading the music and learning it through the scores. What music would you have called yours when you were a young person and into your young adult life? Well, the first concert I ever saw, my mom took me to see Stevie Wonder, which was very exciting. I was a huge Stevie Wonder fan. Amazing. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was just eighties pop music. Billy Joel, Rolls, The Beatles, Michael Jackson. Yeah, like popular music. I think if there if it's not too much to interpolate a, a thread onto that or overlay a thread onto that, it seems like well crafted pop music is the theme that I hear emerging there. Not mm. throwaway music. That's all very like literate and I don't know, I don't want to make it highfalutin, but you're serious minded pop, you craft, craft music. I just love the the harmonies, like how those composers would 
shape harmony. I think it connected to the piano. And in addition to playing classical music, I started seeking out the, the sheet music for some of the pieces I liked from various pop musicians and started to learn them. And so what's the connecting tissue to that introduced you to the world of jazz and improvised music? It was a couple of things. I had some friends that were getting into the jazz band in middle school and they just loved it. They loved the teacher. And so I sought the teacher out and auditioned and he was a huge jazz fan and he gave me a bunch of records. It was a Harry Connick Jr. album and then there was the Miles Davis, My Funny Valentine, Four and More box set. For some reason, when I heard that, I just thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. This yeah. piano playing and the, the connection between the drums and the piano in particular really struck me. And yeah, I just started listening and trying to figure out what was happening, doing some transcribing. I took some lessons with a, a jazz pianist and tried to figure out what chord symbols are and how they work and sort of a long ongoing process and at first I thought like improvisation I didn't know it was made up so I thought it was like I was like oh if I get the score I can play that and I can play just like that no problem <laughs> I had no idea <laughs> that it was improvised yeah it slowly revealed itself I think those are the kinds of experiences you have when you don't grow up with musicians in your household and you kind of find your way and there's often these kind of like blank spots where you don't have the information and you might never have the information in your development. But I think, you know, after learning more about like the AACM, like the artists like Anthony Braxton or Muhal, Richard Abrams, and they created their own pathway and discovered the music in their own way. They didn't really have a teacher or they decided not to have a teacher and figure it out on their own. And I don't know, there's something about that makes musicians individual and unique, I think. I've just always been conscious of not doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. Everybody is studying with this person. I'm going to go find someone else. Yeah. <laughs> just because yeah. you are, it's kind of silly to say, but you are what you listen to and what you're exposed to. So yeah, I've always dodged around these more obvious, clear pathways and tried to find my own way and find, react and respond to the things that are inspiring to me. Like when I was playing classical music, I think I was about 15 or 16, I started to play. I found a piece by Bartok and I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I was like, this is so much, I mean, it's not in a key, it's in a, it was in a mode, but it was really more about rhythm and form and these kind of atonal ideas. And my first teacher's name was Melody and my second teacher, who was very um, strict, her name was Miss Savage. <laughs> so she lived up to her you could write a children's book. I know, right? <laughs> of course, Melody was like the sweetest teacher ever and super supportive. But at some point I needed, I wanted to have a teacher that was more strict so that I could understand some issues I was having and understand the music in a different way. But yeah, I brought this Bartok piece in and she was like, oh, this is, you know, she just like, stop playing this. So of course, as a kid, you're like, oh, yes, I'm onto something good. The forbidden fruit. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then I would come in and explain Bach in terms of chord symbols and she would freak out. That's not what it is. <laughs> it's, it's a C triad in second position. And I'm like, no, it's just C over G. <laughs> so there's all these overlaps, different ways of talking about it, depending on what scene you're a part of. Yeah, your cultural tradition. 
there's a few things you said in there that, that really resonate for me. And one of them was, to badly paraphrase you, the idea of you are what you listen to. That notion uh, of context and intentionality has been rattling around for me a lot lately, both in creative fields and just in relation to things that go on in our world and media consumption and platforms. And it's a very important sort of notion for, and I think increasingly for us to think about in our lives that we really do become what we surround ourselves or become like what we surround ourselves with and, and where we invest our time and who we invest it with. It's a very powerful principle that I do wish I was exposed to at a younger age. It's, and it's also very exciting because if you can find the people that are doing the things or living the life or exhibiting the qualities that you aspire to, it makes it much more attainable. It's fascinating the way that works. Totally. I teach at the Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice with Terry Lynn Carrington. And that was not really a passion of mine when I started the job. And just being exposed to the ideas of Black feminist thought and the issues that women face in jazz and idea of patriarchy and all these things, you know, I was, I was really focused on the music and suddenly I'm thrown into this context of talking more about the social justice issues around music and, and jazz education. And it's been a real learning experience for me. I see the world totally differently now that, you know, after four years of, of being part of that institute. Yeah, it's another example of just being exposed and putting yourself in certain situations and being with certain people that are going to affect the way that you think and, and work. I wanted to talk to you about your work at Berkeley. I had planned to come to it a little bit later in our conversation, but since you brought it up, one of, one of the questions that that was gnawing at me was this idea of the people that come before on the one hand, and then this sort of scarcity mentality on the other. If you have something, I have less, or if this group emerges, then my group's threatened. How does the work fit into the jazz lineage? Like, do you find that there are those that came before that are turning around and extending a helping hand? Or is it much more of a fight for space and attention? Because if there's one piece of the jazz story that, that that's always been so beautiful in my mind is that it's been a place for 
at least for a period of time or certain strands of its history for people who maybe didn't have access to other channels to be able to have a very creative free place. And as a white man of a certain age, I don't know how to metabolize a lot of what I see happening. And I'm very curious, and I'm not asking you to be a representative of, of women in jazz by any means, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to what is the work that you're doing there at Berkeley? There's work within the Institute, which is to say that it's open to all students, regardless of all genders, of all races. So that already opens the door. I mean, I, I, growing up into this as a woman in jazz, I never wanted to associate myself with that side of the music and the programming. That's something I always avoided. I just wanted to be known for my music. And so these kind of like all women in jazz festivals or opportunities were things that I really avoided and tried to stay away from. And so when Terry asked me about joining the Institute, I was so happy to hear that this was a program for everybody. It was for people and for young people that are interested in social justice issues and in correcting the issue. And we need everybody to do that. So that's sort of the first part is that it's open to everyone and we create Mostly we're teaching ensembles, um, and so the ensembles are populated based on gender balance, um, and they're also populated on various abilities and ranges of experience. So it's an idea that, you know, everybody's there to learn from each other and help each other, and we're not trying to create these kind of a hierarchy of levels in any way. This is all kind of happening within the Institute, talking about ideas of erasure, like you were saying, what is the work? And so it's not that we're saying that whoever, like Dorothy Donegan or Sarah Cassie or like these artists who maybe you're not familiar with, so that they have changed or they're like part of the the history that have then influenced others, but just that they've been erased from the history and they didn't really get a chance to play a part in the influencing of the next generations because people didn't know about them. It's talking about those kinds of issues and just making it clear that this is something that we want to change and we want for it to be more more diverse and equitable in terms of how we present the history and what's available. And so to do that, we put together this new standards book of compositions by 101 women composers And it was released last September, and a lot of schools have taken it on as curriculum to teach, to address the jazz canon and make it more equitable and gender balanced in terms of the jazz canon that they're teaching. So that's just one one example, but you would see those names in the book and go, oh, I wonder, we should check out more of this person's music. Yeah, yeah. Well, and knowing how people that are interested in music, whether as a player or as a listener how musically inclined people operate, that's exactly what would happen. You would see a name and you would, if that name was associated, it was resonating for you, no doubt you'd go down the rabbit hole. That's what we we all do as sort of enthusiasts. And ultimately, I would think if you play it out, it has financial repercussions as well, because if more people are performing the music and start recording the music and there's income streams generated, that's just so practical. It's like direct action. Yeah, exactly. It's significant because Berkeley released these real books in the 1970s. The students transcribed a bunch of songs and put them in this book and they were illegal because they didn't have permission from the composers. And 
those books were important to me. It's like growing up in Calgary, Canada, we didn't know like, well, what are the tunes people play? You know, what's the vehicles for like communication here? And those books were really important. And eventually they did get permission and they were legitimized and, and legal to have. But there were no women included. There was one woman, um, Anne Ronald, who wrote Willow Week for me in that first book. So it's significant that Berkeley is now releasing this book of 101 women composers as corrective work to those books from the 70s. Yeah, it's something I like about that as well is that it is an institution choosing to do it because there's so much, there's so many examples today. Our institutions are not always reflective of of our values or it's hard to get, you know, we're in this weird moment where institutional failure, there's plenty of examples of that. And it's so nice to see a counterexample of, of some positivity and growth and recognition. That's exciting. Thank you for doing that work. That's really something else. Yeah. Well, I'm learning so much and I'm along for the ride just as much as the students are. Are there any composers that you were surprised to learn about? Well, you know, Jerry Allen was one of the composers and pianists that I knew a little bit of her music. I think the one album I had when I was a kid was a a record on Blue Note called The Nurturer. I was really into Herbie Hancock at the time, and I thought, oh, she sounds like Herbie. Okay. And then I just dismissed her whole catalog and in my brain, and I was just like that. Now I look back and I go, God, that was so dumb. (laughs) Why don't I dig around a little more? But when I met Terry, Terry was very close with Jerry Allen and she passed away, um, I think in 2017, just a few months after I started working with Terry. Um, and so Terry wanted to pay tribute to Jerry and she put a bunch of concerts together and we played her music for a few years. So I got some real experience learning her tunes, listening to her music, like diving into her catalog. And some of my favorite albums or those first couple albums she put out um, called Printmakers and Homegrown. It's a solo album. And now, I mean, even on this new album, Live at the Village Vanguard, um, we recorded one of her pieces, The Dancer, and and working on another one of her songs for another project. And it's just as wonderful music. Again, it was just ignorant of me to, to just write her off at that time. But I was in that mindset of, oh, people want me to listen to Jerry Ellen because she's a woman. And it deterred me from listening to Mary Lou Williams or the other women that I saw playing and could have learned a lot from. But their gender was so tied up in their music and their legacy that it caused some issues for me. So, Yeah. And ultimately them, right? Being denied listeners. Yeah, for sure. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. SpotlightOnPodcast.com slash store is the place to go to get a Spotlight On collectible for the music and arts lover in your life, or maybe even yourself. Go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com slash store today. And now, back to Chris Davis and Spotlight On. One more question about your progress or your evolution. When you came to New York... There's a theme in some of the other discussions I've read with you and writings about you, which is sort of, it's a bit stereotypical, but like this straddling the line of like uptown, downtown or tradition and new music or avant-garde or, and I'm curious, which New York did you set out to go to? What did you know going in versus what you learned once you got there? 
Well, I have to back up a little bit because I, a year before I moved, I went to this program called the Banff Center for the Arts, which is in Western Canada. And it was a program a lot of musicians went to who are great players now, and they point back to being Banff as a really important moment in their musical evolution. And I can say the same for myself. I went twice when I was 17 and then when I was 20, a year before I moved to New York. And I met Tony Malaby there and Angelica Sanchez. And Kenny Warner was running the program. Ben Monder was there. A lot of really great improvisers. Joe Lovano and Judy Silvano were also there. And they were focused on pretty much playing improvised music and talking about what that was conceptually. And, and it was totally new to me. I came from a more traditional jazz background. I had learned a lot more. I was playing a lot of standards gigs and connected to more of the more traditional jazz world at that point. I was so intrigued by the music and the passion with which these artists were talking about the music and the way and the way they played the music. And I could see there was some kind of communication going on, but I couldn't quite identify what was happening. And we were there for three weeks playing improvised music. And I thought this is one one of the reasons I want to go to New York next year is I want to seek out some of these players and try to learn more about what this music and practice is. And so that's what happened. I moved to New York and I, I called Tony Malaby and he said, come on over, we'll make some food and play some music. And yeah, and I was playing with some other young players who were interested. And so we'd go over as a group and play and he'd give us some ideas about conceptualizing free improvisation and and he suggested that I maybe start composing for free improvisation and blending written material with improvisation. So I started working on that process and, and playing with the group there. So really my like entry point into New York was improvised music. I wasn't really seeking out the more traditional straight ahead scene um, at that point. But saying that, I also played all sorts of gigs. I played with a cabaret group and I play with vocalists and I was doing all sorts of things, church games and I was playing in a Nusrat Sata Ali Khan tribute band, um, playing harmonio. <laughs> so I had like really interesting musical experiences in New York, but the free improvisation and composition really swept me up. I felt like I could really be myself in that music. I could bring in those influences of all those experiences and use them as tools to create conversations and structures and frameworks for, for improv with the groups I was playing with. Hearing you say all that, it makes me wonder how many times I, I may have seen you over the years and, and only would now be able to piece it together in retrospect because I was probably <laughs> at a lot of those. <laughs> Did you go to Barbez in, in Brooklyn? Was that a spot for you? Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, even before I moved to New York in the mid 90s, uh, we used to come down from Connecticut and go to the old knitting factory and go see Sonny Chirac and the early Zorn ensembles and and I used to go see pretty, I would go see Zorn. If he would, if he was going to open a car dealership, I'd go. If he was going to play the <laughs> opening of a car dealership. It, uh, yeah, uh, the people who listen to this podcast have probably heard me tell this story. I saw a run of shows he did for his 40th, 50th, and 60th birthdays. And I just dropped my son off at art school in San Francisco. And one of the first nights out he had, he said, Dad, I'm going to see Electric Masada for Zorn's 70th. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. I did something right as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. 
When I moved to New York, I moved two weeks before September 11th. So I, I got to see the knitting factory and then you couldn't access it at that yeah, after September 11th and everything changed at that point. The knitting factory is open for a few more years after that. But I, I remember like the, all the, the levels or like four levels of music happening and it was just so exciting and like so cool to just go there and be like, oh, let's go check out four different bands and run up and down between the floors and see what's happening. So a lot of, a lot of good things. There was a knitting factory before that one at Lafayette and Houston. That was, it was basically a storefront. Incredible. Just so much music. I mean, Zorn's impact has still not been reckoned with on modern music, New York. I mean, it's just, he's, he's such a towering figure that just blows my mind. And the volume of music is like, forget it. It's just, it, it makes no sense. <laughs> I know. I had a chance to work with him for the Bagatelles project and we became friends and we would go and have lunch and just talking to him about Sodic and the label and how he just prioritized, like he's putting out so much music. I think it's like an album every two months or something. And there's this that sort of idea of like, okay, you put an album out and then you got to wait three years <laughs> to put the next one out because it's, you're not going to have a, any attention on it or reviews and things if you put things too closely together. And he just doesn't give a crap about any of it. <laughs> like, let me put the music out and people will find it. So I really appreciate that about him and that mentality. Yeah, he's a dream guest for this, for what I do here. And I, I keep very low expectations about that because he doesn't do a lot of this, but I, I'll never stop trying. <laughs> yeah, you might say yes. Keep trying. Yeah, yeah maybe. So there, there's a lot that struck me about this record, by the way. I, I, it's such a great record. Thank you. One of the first things that stands out, which I have since noticed other people have latched onto, was the opening number being a Ronald Shannon Jackson tune. Mm -hmm. Not someone who I see get a lot of attention, unfortunately. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to his music and how you came to choose that song. One of my favorite top 10 Desert Island albums is the Ornette Coleman album called Dancing in Your Head. Mm. And Ronald Shannon Jackson plays on that. So that was the first time I'd heard him and heard his name. And then I also work with a producer, David Breskin, who worked with Ronald Shannon Jackson and produced all of his albums. And when I was thinking about putting this new this album out, Diatom Ribbons in 2019, he was encouraging me to check out his group, The Decoding Society. So I kind of went deep dive into those records and I really liked that album, Man Dance, and this, this tune, Alice in the Congo, was on there. And David Breskin was putting this concert together in Texas and was bringing Craig Taborn and I down to play and mm. play the two piano concert. And he said it would be really cool if you could play a, a tune of Ronald Shannon Jackson since he's from Texas and just as a tribute. So Craig and I both transcribed a piece and Alice in the Congo was the piece I chose. And I thought this will be really challenging to make this piece work for two pianos. <laughs> it's all like guitars and drums and rocking out horns. But it, it worked well. And then I just thought this is a great tune for this band, Diatone Ribbons. So I brought it in and made some adjustments to make it work. Your piano work on it behind Julian's playing, it's just so different. And I'm really hung up on it. 
thank you. <laughs> yeah, it really got me. That and is it Nine Hats? Mm-hmm. The track? I yeah. think you refer to it being sort of Dolphy inspired. Yeah, it's an uh, amalgamation of of uh, Dolphy too, and uh, piece by Nan Caro and maybe some other things I can't remember, but. Those there's some material directly connected to Hat and Beard and this player piano piece of Nancaro's. record is very much an achievement because it sounds evolutionary. It's a modern sound, not least of which because of the incorporation of the electronics. If you presented me with a score or the sheet music for any of these pieces, how do you notate what Val's doing? I don't notate what she's doing, but I give her little stems of things. Like on that piece, Nine Hats, there's stems of me playing some prepared piano that she's manipulating. And there's some trumpet. I had a trumpet friend record some parts and kind of overlay them into harmonies and Val manipulates those. And also in like the piece Bird Call Blues, similar to that, I took little clips of interviews and things and she manipulates them in different ways. So it's never like written out. And that was the fun part because I'm such a visual person as I mentioned, like I learned all my classical music through looking at the scores. So everything is like very notated and written out. And when Val, when I asked her to join the group, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Like she reads music, but not super well. And, and I don't think she even really needs to. So I, yeah, it was all like about these clips and thinking about spatially, like how she would interact with the group. Is there more to be explored there for you? Yeah, I think so. We've been playing the music now for a couple of years. So I think when we go on the road this year or play shows, we'll be incorporating some different music just to keep the evolution happening. It's just, I feel like it's the tip of the iceberg with Val, what we've explored, like this one piece, Parasitic Hunter on the album. She has all these little clips from Carl Heinz Stockhausen speaking about his intuitive music from this lecture. And I cut that up. I just thought, was very cool play to the rhythm of your intuition and these kinds of directives that work with this piece that's that are based on bird calls and repetition and different kinds of rhythms that the group explores and develops and so those clips that she uses are ways of directing or not directing or framing for the audience what one way of thinking about 
<laughs> about this one moment in the improvisation. So I sort of like that idea of wor- using words to be suggestive, but not necessarily prescriptive in any way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It relieves you of the burden of becoming a lyricist. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing. I, I would love to have a vocalist and write lyrics, but I don't. And I <laughs> think I could ever do that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last passes through the album, I went for a walk and was listening to it in earbuds. And I'm curious, do you vocalize while you're playing? Because there's so many unidentifiable textures in the music, I wasn't sure, but I do you make noise while you're playing? I thought I heard like the sound of person. <laughs> no, that's not me. It's hard to say. I mean, recording a live album at the Vanguard with five people on stage and electronics had its own challenges. I mean, the sound is great. I think our um, engineer, Ron St. Germain, did an incredible job. But there's just things like buzzing and the amps and some valve speakers. And gosh, Ron spent like months just debuzzing these tracks and trying to make them sound clear. So it's possible you're hearing some buzzing <laughs> from an amp or something or other. <laughs> yeah, either that or it's the ghosts, because I'm mm-hmm. sure the Vanguard's packed with them. Um, <laughs> yeah. You said something somewhere else about the dryness of the room and how having multiple nights there really helped you not only explore the music, but tune to the room. First of all, the album is, it's so well engineered, like the separations and everything. It just sounds, it's, it's a great sounding record. So hats off on that. But there is like this sort of unmistakable village vanguardness. Yeah, it is. It's a dry room and that poses some issues for drums. It's great. And sometimes for piano, it can be a little, well, it's very revealing if you make yeah. a mistake or... There's not this kind of like singing to the notes. You're not hiding behind the pedals. You can't you can't hide behind any reverb at all. So it just takes a second. But with a band like that size, it, I think it's helpful to have it be in a dry room. Could you tell me a little bit about, I know this is incredibly nerdy to ask, but the synth that you play on the album. And I'm asking specifically about it because you name what it is in the credits. <laughs> That to me, I was like, you know, as, as somebody who sees meaning everywhere, I was like, oh, that's important. And so I, I Googled the I Googled the gear and read up a bit on it. And now, of course, I want one. But <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your use of a synthesizer at all? Some pianists don't go there. You know, my, my musical hero is McCoy Tyner. And one of the things that's very noteworthy about him is he never really went electric in a world when all of his contemporaries very much did. I think of his innovations being more around arrangement and instrumentation, maybe composition. So I'm just curious about your use of synthesizing. I bought it during the pandemic just because I was bored. <laughs> and I was like, I need, I need some kind of outside influence, something new to learn. And Craig Taborn, who's a dear friend of mine and someone we, I play with a lot, he's also incredible at electronics. And I've always felt that or had a hunch that his experience with electronics and, and sequencing effects has a, has influenced the way that he plays. I thought, I'm going to, I want to check out this keyboard and try a little bit of programming ideas and see like what that's about. And it was really interesting. This little keyboard, it's like two, under two pounds. And it was, <laughs> I tried to manipulate the sounds or like, you know, change them. And 
make them individual, but I really had no idea what I was doing. But the sequencing part was really cool because you only had two options to sequence things. And there were all these limitations around like Mm -hmm. the way that you could transpose things. And it wasn't like so intuitive, like the piano is cool because I've been playing it forever, but there were just certain things like you couldn't get around, you know, you could only sequence two ideas. So you'd go back and forth. And when you'd bring in like the second idea, it just interrupts the sequence of the first one. So not like you're starting again from beat one. So all these look like weird things that I don't know. I just, I like those. I love limitations. That's yeah. something I work on and use a lot in my composition and improvisations and all these different kinds of limitations that brought up some like new things. And so the, that piece nine hats is a lot of it is me exploring the keyboard and just the little limitations of that, what that little keyboard has. And I have no idea why I labeled, I should have just put like synthesizer. <laughs> but, oh, it was so intriguing know. to have the name, but I was like, Oh my gosh, there, there's something, there's, there's something here. I know. I was just trying to be thorough and I was being super geeky and, I don't know. It's there for everyone if they want to check it out. Yeah. Were you previously a gearhead? Do you? No. no. Not at all. And I, I don't know if I'll ever do that again, but it was a learning experience. And I like the way the keyboard sounds. I've used it on gigs. And I like that it, I can sustain pitches and alter the sound. Like on the piece, the dancer, Julian and I are playing this melody in unison. And it's really nice to have that sustaining element in the keyboard. It winds up serving the recording well, too, because of the room. Like, it gives a little texture. I also have always enjoyed, like, I, I saw one of the last shows I saw at the Vanguard before I moved was Donnie McCaslin's band. Mm. And I just, I love seeing people bring modern equipment into that place or into places mm. like that. It's just, because it's, it, I would not say it's in any way, like, sacrilegious, but it's fun. Like, it's, because yeah. it's easy to be, to treat those places as, like, holy relics. That then it would go to die. Right. It's exciting to just see experimentation. Yeah, exactly. And I was on the road with Dave Holland this summer and we were talking about recordings and he was like, I don't know how you feel, but when I look back and I listen to all these records I did, it takes me like right back to the moment of what was happening in my life and what I was thinking about musically and otherwise. And I just thought that's exactly how I, I think of it too. Like, that all the things on this record, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of influences, but it's just that moment in time that I was looking at these artists and ideas and trying to figure out how to bring them all in. It'll be different a couple of years from now, whatever happens, but I'm so so glad to have, I've done so many records. I think I have like, I don't even know, maybe I did like one or two a year since I was like in my early twenties and I'm so grateful to like have those now as these sort of markers of, of thoughts and relationships and what was going on at that time. That's really interesting because that contrasts so interestingly with other artists I've spoken with who have not a cavalier, but they have much less connection to some of the work. They, especially artists who, who are sort of prolific or play a lot of sessions or they lose the place in time and they're not even sure like, well, what record was that on? Or don't have even like the interest or the appetite to talk about like the body of work that way. It's really interesting how artists relate to their work. I know it could get blurry, but yeah, for me, it's, I don't know, I hear it and I go, oh yeah, <laughs> like I know it takes me right back to that moment. 
how do you think about repertoire then? You have a body of work now, both your own compositions and things you've recorded. Are there opportunities to take older works and to put them into newer musical contexts with different players? Or do you leave your, you just keep going? I'm just like grappling with that right now. <laughs> I'm playing another week at the Vanguard with Jonathan Blake and Robert Hurst. And I have a lot of trio music. <laughs> so I was like trying to bring that in and it's hard. I'm not, I don't know the answer yet, but it's something I'm thinking about. I'd like to revisit some of my old music. When I was out with Dave, he brought only old tunes and it kind of inspired me to and also I just heard a concert of Bill Frizzell and he was also playing some old music. And yeah, I just thought this, I've written a lot, so maybe I can try to bring things in and reformat them in some way. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. It's tough. I've, I've been trying to get it in and it, <laughs> I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Too many ideas. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you a little bit about being a label owner. I guess a few things, the sort of impetus to do that, who, if any, models you were looking towards. And most importantly, what is the unique thing? Like, what's is there a business model difference? Is it because it's artist driven? Like, I would love to know the story of what you're doing there. I had put out a lot of music on different small labels before I started this label and I was working with a foundation at the time that was supporting a lot of my projects. And so I owned the recording and the projects outright. And it didn't really make sense to give those projects to a small label that would profit from them because I already, you know, paid for them to be made. I was thinking about trying to start this label. And I just, I'm also driven to be in the service of others in terms of supporting community and all of that. So the label was the way that, you know, I could do that um, for my own community in, in New York of composers. I mean, the, the mission of the label is to support adventurist and non-commercial artists in the recording and the dissemination of their work. That was the impetus for starting the label, those two things. And I turned the label into a not-for-profit in 2019. And I was looking and spending some time with John Zorn, and he has done that for Sodic. And I thought, oh, this, this might be a model that's sustainable because I had so many friends start labels and they kind of ended after a few years. So I was looking at John's model and also at Dave Douglas's model or Greenleaf. I was living close to him at the time. So we would meet and talk about 
different approaches for the label. But yeah, John's approach was really inspiring to me. And so I started the not-for-profit and it supports the work of the label. And now it's, I think we have like 29 releases of 21 artists and it's going strong. Does that mean that the not-for-profit fundraises? It can. We haven't. We rely on the board who contributes a certain amount every year for their operation costs and the recording and printing CDs and all of that for artists. And then also we take part of, we we try to recoup whatever we put towards an artist's album. And so those funds also go back into the label to continue to support the work that we're doing. And in the context of this music, what does a label do? Does an artist deliver you a finished master? Are you funding recordings? Are you, do you manufacture physical? Like, what does it mean to even be a label in 2023 for non-mainstream music? I think the main thing it provides is an umbrella for like-minded artists. Mm. Now that we have quite a few artists, if you're a fan of Angelica Sanchez or Craig Taborn or Chet Smith, their albums are available through the label and through the website. So that's like first and foremost, I think what it does, it supports the printing of CDs and of getting the music out there to the distribution. And then most importantly, we have a wonderful publicist who works with us and makes sure that the albums are getting noticed and recognized and out there in the world. And so that's maybe the biggest thing that we do for the artists. A lot of artists now pay for publicists and they cost a lot of money. They're, I think, between four to $6,000 per album. So it's a big undertaking after you've made a, a record and paid the musicians and recording and all of that. That's something that we provide to the artists. Some of the artists come with finished masters. It's just really, it varies. Some artists come with an idea and we support some of the recording costs. It just depends on the situation. We can only put out six albums a year, so it's limiting. I get submissions at least a couple a day, so it's hard for me sometimes because I want to say yes to everybody and there's just such great music. But we're looking at some different models of how to address that issue because we want to support artists and sometimes we can't. And because it's a not-for-profit, I think that there might be some ways that we can do good and help support the community without actually putting all the, the money into releasing an album. Do you sign artists or do you sign their individual projects? It's just their individual projects. Yeah. It's a licensing deal. So once the period ends, then the artists get their masters back and where there's no kind of ownership involved in that way. Yeah, that's neat. Thank you so much for spending time. One of the joys of doing this is not only getting to speak with artists, but getting turned on to a steady flow of music. And this record's in heavy rotation. So thank you for uh, your work on it. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks for having me, Florence. It was great. Great to chat. Thank you so much, Chris Davis. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Cuburn's Abstract Message. If you'd like to support our work, please rate and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you'll find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. 
Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.